Well, if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, we're going to continue our series, Forged, How God Develops Faith in the Face of Adversity. Brian Chappell writes of the experiences of a teenager by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. When she was just about 17 years old, in fact, four days before her birthday and the birthday of her father, she found herself in a situation that was just filled with being distraught and depression and discouragement. Her dad was not getting ready to celebrate a birthday. In fact, her dad was dying. So her, and she was one of seven children, her mother, instead of gathering for a party, what they did is they actually just gathered around his bed, listened to his labored breathing, and just kept praying in earnest for God to do a miracle. Her dad passed away. The funeral was small. In fact, it was just a small group of people with the family trudging through the mud. When they came back, it was as if all hope was gone. There was seemingly no hope for their family. There was no income. They had a very heavy mortgage um, against the house. In fact, it soon wouldn't be theirs. You had a mom, seven children. and It seemed as if all hope was just completely dissipated. It was completely gone. Her mother hadn't spoken since the funeral for three days. And while Elizabeth was lying on her bed, 17 years old, she suddenly heard the sound of a broom. Whisk, whisk. And she listened. And just as her mom began this simple household chore, it told her that life goes on, that she could move forward. They were still trusting the Lord still. There was work, meaningful work left to be done. And they were going to move forward trusting the Lord. And she would write in her journal, and I'd like to read a little excerpt of what she said in this, as she listened to her mom doing this simple household task of sweeping. And she wrote this in her diary. The world is not entirely fallen in. All is not lost. There is hope. Life will go on. All of this was said in the sound of a broom, which indicated there were still things worth doing. Her mother was pressing on. The assumption of the duties of everyday life was itself an expression of faith that there was a future. In the gentle rhythm of the broom came a song of hope and triumph over trial. Whisk, whisk, went the broom. And in the repeat of each stroke and countersweep, it whispered, trust and live, trust and live. And taking her cues from her mother, she got up off her bed and she began to engage in the work that God had given her to do. And this wouldn't be the only time uh, she would face great trial. In fact, all of the difficulties that they were facing, they had to endure. And for Elizabeth Elliot, uh, she would go on to marry a fine young man, a missionary. And as a missionary, there would be natives in South America that would take her husband's life. Jim Elliot, I'm sure you're familiar with his story. Leaving her, like her mother, with children to raise, all alone. And yet... She didn't fall back to the patterns of despair 
back in those teenage years because now she understood there was a way to move forward. In the midst of these questions, God, what do I do? How do I move forward? She had learned the profound lesson from her mother, trust and live. And friends, that is a lesson that we need. In the midst of all of our difficulties and trials, as if life wasn't hard enough at times, and all of the difficulties, now going through a pandemic, all the wreckage that it's creating in human lives, sorrow, misery, people that have passed away, and then, of course, all the economic havoc. How, how do we move forward? Well, there's just a simple message that we learn from Elizabeth Elliot's mom. Trust and live. You see, trust and live is how we rest in God's sovereignty in the midst of adversity. And you'll recall, as we've been talking about God's sovereignty, it means that that God is God. He is the creator of all things seen and unseen. He is fully in control. He controls the angelic realm. He is the God of all humanity, of the earth, the cosmos, the universe. He is the one who is working all things, the past, this very present time, and even the future to his ultimate good purposes. So how is it, how do we trust and live? Trust and live and rest in God's sovereignty in the midst of adversity. If you want to really see the answers to this, how to trust and live, Daniel chapter 6 is a goldmine. And I want you to know that this chapter has ministered to my heart and life so many different times, and I'm so excited to share this with you because in this chapter, we see how God displays his sovereignty in the midst of adversity. So take a look, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. And the first thing that we'll see is that God demonstrates his sovereignty through the development of his servants. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Now it says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. So here we have really a change of rulers. You'll recall that Daniel, as a very young boy, probably about 15 years old, he and other Jewish elite young men were brought into captivity, hauled out of Jerusalem, brought to Babylon, and that took place in 605 B.C. And they thoroughly brainwashed these kids, and yet they could not strip them of their strong, profound faith in God. And Daniel served as a lead uh, counsel for Nebuchadnezzar, until, in fact, he served even another king, Nebuchadnezzar's son, and then the Medo-Persian Empire took over. In fact, it was on October 29th, 539 BC, Cyrus and his army literally overran Babylon and completely dominated them and took them over. And so the new world power is Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire. And yet, here we have Daniel, He is continually showing himself, even as an older man. He is about, at this point, 82 years old. He has lived his almost entire adult life in captivity, and yet he's thriving 
God developed him. And so we see here in verse 1, Darius is appointing these satraps. These are provincial administrators. But notice this. Uh, Daniel is actually excelling. He appoints these satraps, these administrators, because he doesn't want to experience fraud. He doesn't want rebellion. He wants people to pay their taxes. So he's got three, and he puts them in charge there. But notice that Daniel distinguishes himself. You see, God demonstrates his sovereignty when his people are developed. And look at verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Now, Darius uh, is really a title. It's similar to a title like king or pharaoh or Caesar. In fact, we know that within the Medo-Persian Empire, that there were five of their rulers referred to as Darius. Now, some people think that, well, it's actually another individual named Gubaru, but actually, my take on this is that this was the title, Darius, and it spoke of Cyrus. And Cyrus realized that he had something very unique in Daniel. And in verse 3, we see that he actually is going to make Daniel his prime minister. He is going to be the key guy to oversee the entire government, to make sure that people fall in line, they do what they're supposed to do, that he's not going to be frauded. And so look at verse 4, though. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could not find, they could, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. You see, Daniel's thriving, God developing him, it created jealousy among all the other provincial leaders, these commissioners and these satraps and these governors. And so far from them actually like esteeming and and valuing a guy like Daniel, jealousy set in. They were set to destroy him. I want you to know that politics were alive and well. And it's just like today. You find someone you don't like. They're in your way to what you want to accomplish and your agenda. What do you do? You got to take them out. Whatever it might be, you lie, you frame them, but you need to remove them. Sound familiar? It's as if it was almost like yesterday's news. I want you to know these same practices were put into place even back here in the Medo-Persian Empire. They want to find some way to destroy this competent, consistent, uh, committed man who had basically spent his entire life in service. And I want you to fully understand that Daniel's life was difficult. He lived as a captive. He never went back to his homeland. We have no record of him ever seeing his parents ever again. He never goes back to Jerusalem. It's difficult, and yet he thrives even as a top official 
in a domineering government that is far, far from God. The only way that happens, friends, is if God develops his servants. And that's what God is seeking to do in you and me. Your job, your position, your place at school, uh, that board that you serve on, I want you to know that God intends to use you right where he's placed you, in the company that you're working with. You see, God displays his sovereignty and his greatness by developing his people. That's why you find, like in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says this, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, for the, from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So if your place of employment is far from perfect, and like that would be like everybody saying, like, yeah, that's where I'm at, right? How do you thrive? It comes from a God-centered orientation. This isn't about you. It's really ultimately not about your company or your place of business or your school. This is about God and God being glorified in your life. So whatever you do, do it for God and in his, for his glory and do it in his strength. It's a pattern we see here, right here from Daniel. And you know, and if you're like, hey, I'm getting up there in age, not really having to think about things, I want you to recognize here, Daniel's at age 82. He's about to face his life's most significant challenge. And God is still bearing much fruit and doing profound work in him. You see, when God's people are developed and they grow and they mature, I want you to know God's sovereignty is put on display. But let me show you something else here. God displays his sovereignty in the midst of adversity when he, through the devotion of his people. So you see the setup here. You see what's taking place? Well, take a look here at verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. Now listen to this. King Darius, live forever. All. See that verse 7? That's going to be a key word. I've circled it in my Bible. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. So they got this plan. I talk, talk about scheming. Isn't it interesting how people so quickly and efficiently can band together to do evil and yet find it so complicated and difficult when it comes to doing good? And notice that they falsely claim all, all of us, as if Daniel's included. He's like, we've got this great idea. You know, you're kind of the new ruler. You've now taken over Babylon and all of its empire. How about this little deal here where, like, all prayers have to be channeled through you? Um, we don't have a lot of evidence that the Medo-Persian uh, rulers set themselves up to be gods. But what was being proposed here is that you're going to take on the role for 30 days as a priestly mediator. It's a way of controlling everyone so that they see that every, all prayer, 
all power has to be funneled through you, that you are the ultimate source. You're the absolute authority, but we're only going to do this for 30 days so that people aren't going to be like completely thrown into dismay that their traditions are going to be removed from them. But for 30 days, only, only people can pray to you and through you. How does that sound to be a self-made God? And Darius, he's like, sounds pretty good. I could see there's a lot of political benefit from doing that. Everybody's united with me. I've got a little ego thing going on myself, you know, being the king of the world. Why don't we do that? Sounds like a plan. Let's put it in place. So they're approaching him. And notice what they've said, you know, like, you know, to show how serious you are, like, if someone doesn't do this, they're going to be executed. And one of the primary means that the Medo-Persian Empire uh, executed people was to do just as they proposed. Let's feed them to lions. Sound good? Well, so look at verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. And so what he's doing is he's saying that you you must pray to me. In fact, it's an unchangeable law. Have you ever heard that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians? That is code for you can't change this. And that's how they establish their laws because they wouldn't change their laws even if it wasn't actually as effective as they might want it to be because it made them look as if they had faults and it was a faulty law. And so if it was the law of the Medes and the Persians, it could not be changed. And so King Darius, he said, you know what? I'll sign the document, and he did. He really didn't think it through. They were playing upon his ego. And look at verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. You see, Daniel is devoted to the one true God. And in this case, he's not going to abandon a practice that he has had pretty much his entire life, to pray three times a day and to face Jerusalem, the city of David, the sole singular location of the national worship of Israel. And even though he had been hauled off into Babylon, which has now been run over by the Medes and the Persians, he's going to continue his prayer and his practice. And notice he's praying and giving thanks, verse 10. Does that sound familiar? You see, that's what God seeks to cultivate in all of his people, that we are people that talk to God. We bring our requests and we do so with thanksgiving. It's actually just like what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Remember when he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ 
Jesus. You see, when we, in all sincerity, go before the Lord and we bring our requests, we do so with humility and thanksgiving. God gives us his peace. It's through these acts of devotion that God demonstrates his sovereignty, especially in adversity. When you pray and you read the scriptures and you meditate upon the word, when you serve with joy, when you give generously, when you worship the Lord from the heart, when you sing praises to his name, whether you're in your car, in your home, at a worship service like this, I want you to know that you're expressing devotion. And it's really a demonstration of God's sovereignty, especially when life isn't going well and it's broken and you might feel despairing and you don't feel like worshiping. Remember, our faith isn't based on our feelings. We put our faith in the Lord and what is true. And any expression of devotion, I want you to know, friends, is a demonstration of God's sovereignty. Have you ever had the experience of like walking upstream, like you're in a river and, and I've done this on some different occasions there, especially when I was younger, which when you, you actually go upstream and when you walk against the flow of the river, like all the silt and the sand and the, the rocks and the pebbles, they all start piling up over your feet and they go against your shins and you're kind of like moving forward, but you're like having to work because everything is calling you to go in the direction of the river. You're going against the flow. I want you to know that that's what devotion to God looks like. You're going against the flow of this culture, a culture that calls you to abandon God, to get rid of the Bible, to not heed anything that God has written in his word, um, to fall into patterns of immorality, to care less about integrity, to lie when it's convenient, to deceive to get your way, to operate from a very human-centered perspective in this life, to be self-centered. And yet, when you come to a place in your life where you're like, you know, the Lord is Lord, and my devotion is to him, that's God's sovereignty at work. And when you stand, and when you go against the flow of this culture, it's as if you're claiming just in a very small part, just a little part for God's kingdom. And you're saying, I am following the Lord. I am not abandoning him. Despite what might be going on in my family, in my community, in the world, I am not going to be a self-centered, self-glorifying individual. My devotion is to him. And friends, when you and I live like this, it's a demonstration of God's sovereignty in the midst of adversity. Remember, Daniel, we know from Daniel chapter 9 that he had a copy of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 20, 32, verse 27, he says, God, he recorded God saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? See, when we focus on God, he fills our heart with hope, with life, we can not only persevere, we could even thrive. And that is our experience when we express devotion to God, when we live devoted to him. It's a demonstration of his sovereignty. You see, God is glorified when he demonstrates his sovereignty in the midst of adversity. You know, another way that God does that, demonstrating his sovereignty in the midst of difficulty, is when he gives demonstrations 
of his deliverance and his dominion. So what is going to happen? Okay, here's the setup. Daniel's not about to change his patterns. What are these guys, what are these, what are his colleagues doing? Well, I can assure you they're not praying. They're looking to bring an accusation. Look at verse 11. Then these men came by agreement. See that? And they're swift to shed blood, right? There they are. They came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Okay? They just so happened to be at Daniel's house. And, and they're watching him. And notice, they see him making supplication before his God. He's doing what he's been doing all the years. This was highly predictable. And so look at this. They've got him. They know he's not praying to Darius because he's got his face toward Jerusalem. He's on his knees before Yahweh, the one true God. And so verse 12, then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Look at this. This is conniving. Did you not sign an injunction that you, O king, for 30 days, uh, it says an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days, is to be cast into the lion's den. You know, can you refresh our memory? I, I think you said that. Is, is that true? Just, just want to make sure. Can we pull the decree up here? Ah, there it is. That's your signature. That's exactly what you said. Um, yeah, for 30 days, they, they could only pray to you or else they're thrown into the lion's den. And the king replied, the statement is true. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Gotcha. They know by virtue of how he's praying, the direction that he's praying, that he's not praying to Darius. He's praying to the one true God. And all of a sudden, the king realizes the trap's been set and he's been taken. Look at verse 14. He went from a self-styled temporary God to a fool in just one day. Verse 14, Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. You can't change anything about this. So verse 16, Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Do you see that? The king told Daniel that statement. How powerful is that? And then a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And so what they did, you've got this pit 
for lions. And it's got this door where they let the lions in. They draw them in with a little bit of food and they would close those doors and they put a huge stone in front of it. And then there was a seal that was put on there. It likely had wax and they would take their, in this case, their signet rings and they would stamp it into that wax. And so did all of the noblemen, including Darius. And what it meant is if you tamper with the seal, you're tampering with the Medo-Persian empire. We will find you and we will destroy you. You just absolutely shall not touch it. And so that's what they do. They, they go after Daniel. They're successful. And I want you to know that these lions, um, what they would do apparently is that they would keep them just on the gnawing edge of hunger. These are far from tame beasts. Uh, some people are like, well, they're just not super ferocious because they're old. No, they're, they're on the gnawing edge of hunger. And there's a hole on the top where people could watch and see what is about to happen. And so they put Daniel in there. And notice that King made the statement, your God. You see that in verse 16? Your God, your God, the one you always and constantly serve, will himself deliver you. We'll look at verse 18. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. It was a sleepless night. And then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and he went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Notice the king is like, has your God been able to deliver you? You see, in the king's mind, it's like, well, he's only, you know, like only if he was delivered and not like shredded by the lions would God be able to deliver. But I want you to know, Daniel couldn't lose. You know, see, God could have just silenced and just shut the mouths of the lions. But in this case, he actually sends an angel. And that angel not only accomplishes the work that God intended him to do, and that is to keep those lions from consuming Daniel, that angel keeps Daniel company that entire night. And so when this king rushes and he's like, was your God able to do it? I want you to know Daniel couldn't lose. If he had been shredded by the lions and eaten alive, guess what? He would be in the presence of the king the true king, God himself. But if he was kept alive, and as in this case, so he is once again showing that God demonstrates his sovereignty through these great acts of deliverance and these expressions of dominion. For Daniel, he couldn't lose. And can you imagine the excitement and thrill, not only for Darius, but for everybody except for the officials that were conspiring to kill him, the news would go out. Certainly everyone would be talking about the fact that Daniel had been thrown in this lion's den. 
But once news got out that God preserved his life, think of the excitement. Think of the thrill that, that God had preserved his life. Now, I want you to know, God doesn't always just preserve human life. We have to remember that we need to see life from an eternal perspective. In fact, it's far better to be in the presence of God himself than to have to lift up your eyes and say, O king, live forever, and looking at Darius, okay? But what we see here is that God doesn't always spare us from human calamity. The prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. Thomas, they speared him to death. Peter, crucified upside down. And I could go throughout church history showing that many who have held fast to their faith faced a martyr's death and did so with dignity. And yet immediately, at the time of their earthly expiration, were in the presence of the glorious God in whom they've served so well. And yet I want you to know that God does demonstrate his sovereignty through acts of deliverance. And notice here in verse 24, um, we've got this situation here, excuse me, uh, in verse 23, uh, where God says, then the king, excuse me, the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And then the king gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them and their children and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And according to what we've learned in history, this is what they would do. Um, And if you were committed of a, a heinous crime like this, treason, trying to take out the prime minister, they would not only kill you, but they would actually kill all of your family members because they wouldn't want any one of them to try to assassinate the king, in this case, Darius or Cyrus. And so this was the practice. But in Daniel's case, he was delivered from a physical death, and it was, it was done so that God would demonstrate his sovereignty. And I want to ask you, has God delivered you? Has he delivered you like from your sins, facing the penalty of death? Has he delivered you from addiction? Has he delivered you from an unhealthy relationship or danger or devastating circumstances or a false accusation? You see, every time that God brings a deliverance, it's a demonstration of his sovereignty. You see, God didn't want to save Daniel from the lion's den He wanted to deliver him out of it. Why? Because that was the way he would receive a greater glory. So how does God display his sovereignty in the midst of adversity? Well, we see in a variety of ways, but there's one other. He does so through the declarations of his character. Look at what Darius the king is saying now. Look at verse 25. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. Sound familiar? It's what Nebuchadnezzar said, I want you to experience peace, and it's only found 
in knowing the one true God. And he says, verse 26, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, or it could say, or even Cyrus the Persian. You see, these declarations of God's character, they demonstrate his sovereignty. I mean, think of it. These are Gentile kings. Darius, just like Nebuchadnezzar, is now extolling the goodness and the greatness of God. You know, the whole reason that the Babylonians hauled the Jews, uh, the southern kingdom, uh, into exile was because they had, for the most part, especially their leaders and kings, had abandoned God. And now, just like it was prophesied in Genesis chapter 29, now the nations are bowing down. Now Gentile kings are announcing the greatness and goodness of God. That was the role that the Jewish people were supposed to have. And what God is doing is he is raising up Gentiles to know him and to declare his greatness and his goodness. And if God could rescue three men from a fire, if God could rescue Daniel from a lion's den, then God could fulfill the promise that he made, like you find in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 14, to bring his people out of exile and back to the promised land. That was the promise that was given. And do you know that Cyrus, in 538 BC, he made the decree that the Jews were to go back. The temple was to be restored and rebuilt. You see, these declarations of God's goodness and greatness, they're demonstrations of his sovereignty. And you see, this pattern that we see in Daniel is actually, it pictures the Savior who paid for our sins. First Peter chapter 2, these are some profound words. It says, beginning in verse 21, listen to this. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Trust and live is how we rest in God's sovereignty in the midst of adversity. You see, Jesus, just like we saw like with Daniel, he uttered no threats. He just kept entrusting himself to the Father. And he actually is the one who bore the penalty for our sins so that we will have life. And you know how God shepherds and guards and guides us, like he was talking about in verse 25 there? When we trust him and live in him. When we do so, that's how we rest in God's sovereignty in the midst of adversity. And this, by the way, was the theme of the Apostle Paul's life. In his final statement, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
he writes these words beginning in verse 16. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Where did he get that? Daniel chapter 6. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The ultimate difference in our life is not that our circumstances get better. It's that God is on his throne. He is sovereign in this world, and he's the one who is reigning in our hearts. And so let's learn the lesson that Elizabeth Elliot's mother taught her, and Daniel 6 teaches us. Trust and live. It's how we rest in God's sovereignty when we're facing adversity. Let's do this and live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your just profound ways you have given us your word and you've given us your people to show us your ways, to demonstrate your sovereignty, to beckon us and call us to a greater faith, to trust you and to live. Father, for someone who is listening and watching today, who has never truly trusted in your son, would they realize that he is the one who bore our sins? He gives forgiveness, and he calls us to a life of discipleship, a life of following and knowing you. Would they just pray and say, Lord, God, I repent of my sin, and I trust your son as my savior. Lead me, guide me, give me great faith. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, may we just rejoice in the fact that you have delivered us You are good, you are sovereign, you are great. Would you increase our faith? Would you fill us with your joy? And would you do all these things for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.